Welcome to the Health and Wellness Show on the SOT Radio Network, where we expose the lies and emphasize the truth about health in our modern world. Welcome, everybody, to the Health and Wellness Show. My name is Jonathan. I'll be your host for today. Um, Joining us in our virtual studio today, we've got Erica, uh, Tiffany, and Doug, and uh, Gabby is not with us uh, today, but she may be joining us um, at some point, uh, if if that becomes possible. And we have a special guest today, too, uh, Dave, who's going to be talking about some experiences that he had. Um, Our general topic today is preparation. otherwise kind of glibly known as uh, prepping or um, preparing for disasters, for emergencies, things like that. Um, it's, it's got a, it's, it's been painted with this brush, I think, uh, especially in recent times is, is being kind of a wacko or you think that the entirety of society is going to collapse and you've got your bug out bag and all that kind of stuff. But there's, um, it, it's not like, it's not a tinfoil hat kind of topic. Uh, it's more practical. And those are some of the things that we're going to touch on uh, today, talking about general aspects of it and maybe a little bit more focused on some of the health aspects and what you can do to be prepared uh, if the power goes out, uh, say if the hospital is not accessible and there are some emergency things that you need to do on your own. And then uh, later in the show today, we're going to be talking about uh, canning um, because that's one of the biggest issues is how are you going to have food? Um, and how to best prepare your own food, get it canned, um, and get it stored so that you don't need uh, refrigeration necessarily. Um, so let's see here. Today we're going to start off a little bit with uh, uh, the idea of why we need to prepare. Um, it seems like a, a lot of people in our modern culture have, have kind of settled into a comfortable rhythm of always being able to go to the store, always being able to order something, you know, the, the trucks are always running. Um, but that may not always be the case. And so we just wanted to touch on some of the ideas about why uh, it's good to be ready for those things to not be available. And uh, Erica is going to cover an article to start with called The Writing is on the Wall. Do you want to go over that a little bit? Yeah. So um, this week in the news, there was a great article um, under the Society's Child section on the SOT.net page called The Writing is on the Wall, Be Prepared by Thomas Miller and um, from Personal Liberty on March 16th. And basically, like what Jonathan just shared about, you know, the introduction is about how there's many TV shows like Doomsday Preppers and Doomsday Castle that display examples of people preparing for extreme scenarios. And um, he goes on to say that these scenarios are often so extreme that even most preppers think they are extreme. The typical response to these scenarios by the average person is to think preppers are crazy and that there is no practical application for preparedness. He says, I can tell you this is not the case. But I guess the news would be boring if stories of preparedness were logical and reinforced the need to prepare. Regardless of how you feel, there are many signs that indicate the practicality of being prepared for a variety of scenarios from natural disaster to job loss to government collapse. Some of these signs we're already seeing today, and we'll probably cover those, few of those signs in the, in the, in the show today. 
but he says it's almost as if the writing is on the wall telling us that we are in store for some tough times. And um, he goes on to give one scenario that's kind of interesting about um, reports are coming out of Venezuela that they're um, implementing a plan by the Venezuelan government to install fingerprint scanners in grocery stores to prevent the stockpiling of food. This has become a concern because of the plummeting value of their currency and the low prices of oil. Hmm. And um, anybody else want to share anything that they've noticed in in the recent weeks about uh, or months about uh, news items that are coming out that would uh, want you to be a little bit prepared? Well, concerning uh, job loss, there's, I think I've read in one of the, the site articles, there's been over 100,000 oil sector jobs that have been lost. So even if you don't like picture the end of the world as we know it or a hurricane or an ice age or something like that, I mean, how many people have lost their jobs? It's fairly common. So prepping just mm-hmm. home will be wise. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, if it, yeah. being prepared is... Is, is always a, a good idea no matter what. I think people that live in, mm-hmm. you know, uh, hurricane or natural disaster prone areas are more aware of this than other people. But, um, you know, it, it doesn't take a societal collapse to, uh, uh, you know, to require the, the need for at least a little bit of preparation. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah. And even people who aren't in these, in these kind of hot weather zones, um, you know, the weather, if you keep up on SOT, you, you, you see how the weather is going crazy lately. So um, even just to that extent, you know, you think you're in a, a relatively safe area. You know, tornadoes are going off the charts. There's uh, volcanoes opening up all over the planet. Uh, cometary bombardment. I mean, we're seeing all kinds of, uh, of more uh, fire in the sky than usual. So it, it, it certainly doesn't hurt to be prepared for, for something that is completely out of the ordinary. Exactly. And the author goes on to state that all of these events um, are happening seem to justify the effort and expense of prepping and support the aforementioned writing on the wall, right? So looking at what is happening all around us, there is definitely greater risk associated with not being prepared for a disaster than there is for being prepared for one. And so today in the show, we're going to cover some of the steps that you should consider in implementing um, as soon as possible, you know, like uh, establishing food and water stores, implementing a security plan, and being prepared for a medical emergency. And one thing the author um, kind of stimulated some commentary by one of our SOT editors about the importance of situational awareness, right? So being... Um, under the comment, it says, in the perception of what's going on around you. So situational awareness involves being aware of what is happening in the vicinity in order to understand how information, events, and one's own actions will impact goals and objectives, both immediately and in the near future. So um, knowledge with respects to inputs and outputs of what's going on around you and a feel for the situations, people, and events that play out due to variable, you know, um, outcomes. 
one thing that uh, under the definition, it says knowing what is going on so you can figure out what to do and the combining of new information with existing knowledge and working memory and the development of a composite picture of the situation along with projections of future status and subsequent decisions as to appropriate courses of action to take. Yeah, I think that's really important. You know, I think that we're we're kind of encouraged in this society to not really pay much attention to what's going on around you. You know, there's kind of like everything is, is, is very comfortable most of the time. You know, you can always go to the store and just buy something if you need to. Um, so you never really think about, you know, what what could possibly happen? What uh, What would you do if suddenly you couldn't go to the store and buy something? You know, or if, you know, if that store wasn't there anymore or that store was shut down or, or whatever the case may be. So, yeah, keep, keeping an eye on things and, and really kind of being aware of your own environment, I think, is extremely important. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And, you know, there was another um, article that was carried on SOT last year from The Atlantic, which is a pretty well-read site, you know, with a, a lot of readers. And... Um, it's called Prepping for the End of the World as We Know It by Jessica Hester. And um, in, they had this statistic in there that I kind of found interesting. In 2012, nationally, a nationally represented survey by Kelton Research um, said 41% of respondents said they believed stocking up on resources or building a bomb shelter was a more worthwhile investment than saving for retirement. <laughs> That's pretty telling. Yeah. I, I think one of the things that we can kind of talk about uh, today, too, is that it's um, uh, this doesn't need to be something that makes you uh, really scared or freaked out. I think that it might be a common response in some people's minds, like, holy crap, I don't have the ability to spend, you know, $3,000 and stock up a, a food closet. Mm-hmm. Um, but there are mm-hmm. some really basic things that you can do. And also, um, <clears throat> we wanted to touch on, uh, the idea of acquiring skills and also networking, uh, with your neighbors. Sometimes human connection mm-hmm. can be much more valuable, you know, than having an entire stockpile full of goods and resources. Um, because, you know, as we've seen many cases over and over, uh, when people work together, you can accomplish much more, uh, than you can on your own. So, um, just knowing your neighbors, uh, knowing who they are, and like Erica mentioned, situa- situational awareness, understanding uh, the environment that you live in, um, things like that, uh, knowledge uh, can be its own resource. Exactly. Um, and it's a good idea to get to know uh, farmers in your area. There are some small family farms in your area. Go over there, meet the farmer. Uh, get to know Ross, what kind of animals he has, try to action with him. Um, most of the farmers really like showing people around their farms and getting new customers, so that's one thing. Um, if there's yeah. Amish or Mennonite around you, uh, they look really simply. Uh, they're not collect- connected to the electrical grid. Get to know how they you know, run their households and how they get together and uh, have a sense of community. Mm-hmm. Totally. <clears throat> and just like you said, a lot of people really like to uh, share information and uh, mm-hmm. and have discussions about these kind of things. I mean, I've found more often than not, 
if you sincerely approach someone and say, Hey, I see that you have this skill, you know, like <clears throat> one of our neighbors um, gardens every year and his garden is just always overflowing. And every time I have a question for him, he's like, yeah, dude, let's sit down and I'll tell you what I know, you know? And, and I mm -hmm. think that's the case with mm -hmm. the majority of people, honestly. Um, so, yeah, uh, um, a little yeah. added tip on that, you know, um, there was a, um, I'm looking for the article now, but there was a, uh, um, a kind of a four day camp out in, uh, North Carolina, uh, about a prepper camp. And, um, mm -hmm. let me see if I find the article and I'll, I'll get back to it. But they basically, uh, they held a, a camp where people could learn skills like that and talk about just like what we're talking about today, canning and, and, and meeting your neighbors and having a, a community support if any scenario were to go down. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. And a good way to get in touch with that is to go on meetup.com. They have all kinds of prepper and survivalist groups and they have classes and get togethers and skill sharing sessions. So meetup.com is good. Yeah. Yeah, and especially for people who live in more metro areas. I mean, where I live mm -hmm. is more of a rural area, so um, we're very fortunate to kind of have this innate sense of how to take care of yourself. Um, the majority of kids that live here grow up, <clears throat> excuse me, they grow up learning how to hunt, um, how to fish, things like that. So a lot of these skills are kind of bred in um, as you grow up in that kind of an area. But if you live in a metro area, like even the suburbs, but especially in a, in a downtown, you know, or nearby to a downtown of a large city. Um, I think a lot of those skills are lost over time, especially as we get mm -hmm. um, multiple generations uh, who have lived in cities, say your parents and your grandparents have all, you know, lived in a, in a highly populated area. Um, there's not this need uh, to rely on those kind of skills because like Doug mentioned, you can always go to the score store. There's, you know, convenience stores are called convenience stores for a reason. It's always there. Um, mm -hmm. But there's a good chance uh, coming up here in the near future. I mean, none of us can predict the future, but it really does seem like um, at pretty much any day now, uh, you know, these uh, we could, you know, we could encounter any number of things. We could have a natural disaster that nobody saw coming. We could have a, a, a bolide impact just like happened over Chelyabinsk in Russia. You know, that blew mm -hmm. out windows for what was it like 400 square miles. And, um, you look at something like that happening over a city, um, you know, the, the repercussions are really, really dire, uh, especially with, you know, the, the way that people are kind of driven to panic these days. So, yeah, there's a really the, uh, good book out. Oh, there's a really Go good ahead, book Jeff. out in 2009. It's called One Second After. It's by okay. William R. Fortune. And it's okay. uh, a fictional book about an EMP pulse that went off over the United States and the disastrous aftermath. I mean, even if you don't um, strictly think in terms of EMP pulses, I think uh, the scenarios presented in that book will give you a good idea of what the aftermath of a disaster will be like and the effects on the community. So if you have yeah. a chance to check that out, it's called uh, One Second After. Cool. Doug, what were you going to say? Oh, there? Yeah. Well, oh I wanted well, to Well, I was add, just going to bring oh, up the possibility. Oh, sorry. Go ahead, Erica. Oh, no, that, that, um, sorry. I, I, 
the prepper camp information is actually in that article, Prepping for the End of the World as We Know It, the Atlantic article I mentioned earlier. So I really recommend uh, listeners get on to that article and just look at the photos that they have on there and then read about kind of what they do over this four-day camp. It's it's pretty interesting. And um, kind of the takeaway message from the article is, at its core, prepping is about wanting to be self-sufficient and self-reliant. Mm-hmm. Cool. Yeah. Well, I was just going to bring up that, uh, yeah, we, we we had just kind of mentioned, like, all these possible, like, uh, environmental catastrophes and stuff, but there's also the, the very real possibility of a dollar crash in the near future, mm-hmm. like an economic yeah. catastrophe. And, you know, that's not necessarily anything that's uh, – you know, major death and destruction, um, you know, on an environmental level, but uh, there's certainly the possibility that of, of money becoming completely devalued or massive inflation or, or things like that. And, you know, if anybody keeps up with this kind of stuff online, you know, people have been predicting this for um, the last little while. It looks like it is imminent, but, uh, you know, not to freak anybody out or get all panicky or anything like that, but being prepared uh, in that sort of event is also also important. Totally. Yep. And one can never discount we'll, a zombie attack. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think it's underway already. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the living dead are amongst us. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, with our, our, our special guest today, uh, Dave, um, we, we were going to go to Dave to talk a little bit about, um, personal experience with this kind of thing. Um, I've, I've known a few people who are involved in, in different types of, uh, natural disasters. Um, the, the big earthquake that happened in California and, uh, um, Katrina in new Orleans, which was especially horrific, but, um, Dave had some, uh, some personal experience to share with us, uh, regarding the, uh, the hurricane that happened in, uh, Hawaii in what was it? 2002. Is that when that was? Yeah. Um, yeah. Do you want to just talk about what your experience was like and, and how, how, how did you see that, that people responded to, uh, to a natural disaster and, and preparing for that kind of thing? Uh, yeah, sure. Maybe I'll give a little background. Anybody's not familiar with Hurricane Aniki. Um, I had hiked about 12 miles into a valley on the island of Kauai and, um, basically without warning got hit with a category five hurricane and i was pretty much by myself for most of the hurricane well i didn't even know i was in a hurricane until i was in the eye and wow. uh yeah it's uh kind of a long story but basically everything was destroyed on the whole island you know airport was you know completely destroyed uh you know you couldn't even recognize the island and you know uh People's responses were really interesting. Um, in the beginning, you'll you'll see people kind of come together, right? It's kind of a community experience, and everyone wants to help each other. But then things can really change. Um, you get two ty- types of people, basically: people who want to help and share, and then you get people who are very selfish, and it's all about them and their things. So the dynamic is very interesting. Um, for instance, we were really isolated, like we were stranded on a beach back in this valley, 
and there was a few of us that survived, and we had kind of set up a community camp, and um, we were just sharing everything, right? You're glad to be alive. You survived. You know, it's just kind of almost a party atmosphere, and mm. within a day or two, people started coming into the valley, right? They had left their stuff in the campground there, and it was very bizarre because, um, you know, everything's destroyed. Like, who's going to come back to get their sleeping bag, backpack? You know, there's not even a way into where we were at. I mean, the trails were destroyed. But these this, uh, these two ladies showed up in a helicopter, right, to get their sleeping bags and their backpacks. And it was very strange, you know, like... Um, Excuse me, I have a little mental fart here. Uh, <laughs> um, if you guys want to ask any questions, that, that would help me here. So there was yeah, no was siren, it? no nothing? Nobody knew the hurricane and Nikki was on the way? Well, that was interesting. That the uh, authorities knew it was coming, but they didn't give much warning. And we, we were up in the valley, right? And um, they knew we were up there, but they never sent anybody to warn us. Mm-hmm. Uh, how many how many days were you uh, back there before you know? Let's say before you got out and, and kind of got back to your normal life. Was it a a few days or a week or longer? I was back there for about two weeks. Wow! And okay. The, time, the, weather was, the weather was perfect. You know, no wind, sunny. You know, kind of paradise sort of you know feeling. And then mm-hmm. literally without warning, the hurricane hit. I mean, within an hour. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was complete chaos. Wow. Well, can can you like describe a little bit about what happened like during the hurricane? What did you see? Well, uh basically uh the environment completely changed, right? Like I was in the valley and I was actually on my way down to the beach and it's a, probably about a mile hike from where I was at. And there's three streams you have to cross, and, and you know, they're usually gentle streams. Um, by the time I got to the bottom uh, section, the third crossing, the streams were raging so powerfully that I was almost not able to cross. I literally had to run and jump and grab a branch and swing across. And Jeez. as I got to the other side where I was standing, it was completely wiped out. <laughs> and, wow. And, Normally, where uh, at the beach, there's a campground. So I got to the campground, and it was really bizarre. Nobody was there. They had actually came and got the people at the beach. So I go mm-hmm. to my camp where I had everything set up, and within like a minute or two, the winds were so strong that my camp was completely wiped out, like everything mm-hmm. gone. I mean, my camp blew in the wind and was just gone, right? And I was wow. thinking, oh, shit, this is a... Uh, this is a crazy storm. I've never been anything like this, right? So yeah. at that point, like, you know, it's, it's like uh, you, you want to really keep a clear mind. I can't emphasize this, you know. Like, you know, we talk about prepping and get prepared for things. Well, that's really great, but sometimes you can just get wiped out. Everything is gone instantly. And, and it's very important to really to keep your mind, right? Like if you take, mm-hmm. you've ever been in Boy Scouts or any kind of survival or hunter safety, that's the first thing they tell you. If you start to panic, sit down and just, you know, 
try to think calmly before you react. Mm -hmm. So at this what, point, what is, all of your stuff was wiped out. It was, I guess, strewn all over the place. What did you yeah, do at yeah, that well, point? When... Well, at that point, I was kind of running for my life because um, I, I didn't mm -hmm. know there was nowhere to go. Right, I was pinned on the beach between the ocean and uh, a cliff. So at that point, fortunately for me, I was thinking really clearly, right? I wasn't in a state of panic, but, you know, like, I mean, literally trees are snapping in half and blowing by me. So my, my first reaction was to find safety, right? So luckily I found a small little cave that was at the back of the beach and where I could sit and, and start to think what, what was my next move. Mm -hmm. What were some of the first things that went through your mind when you were, uh, you know, in, in kind of the heart of the storm? Were you thinking about, you know, how am I going to get out of here or what What are we going to eat, you know, the, later in the day or the next day? Or what were you thinking about at that moment? Yeah, at that point, like, those things don't even enter your mind. It's just to get to safety, right? Because there's so much yeah. debris flying around that would have easily to be killed or injured. Right. So that was my reaction. And... My next reaction was my friends who are up in the valley still stuck up there. You know, what can I do to help them, right? So mm -hmm. I'm kind of hanging out in this cave, just, you know, tripping out, like, what's going on? And it was bizarre. After about an hour or two, everything went dead still, right? So my first reaction was to try to go back up in the valley to, you know, help my friends. But at that point, I couldn't even get to the trailhead because everything was wiped out. And that's when I cl climbed to a vantage point to see what was going on, and that's when I noticed that I was in the eye of a hurricane. And that, that was, wow. you know... <laughs> so then I was just, you know, holy crap. <laughs> yeah. Could you see the wall of the, uh, of the storm around you? Yes, I could. It was like the blackest cloud you could imagine, perfectly circular. Right? Wow. So, mm. Jeez. So how did you so then go back to the cave? Excuse me? Oh, sorry. I was just wondering, like, at, at that point, once you realized you were in the eye, did you head back up into the valley or did you go back to the cave and wait out the rest? Yeah, I went back to the cave. There's nowhere else to go. And at that point, sure. the wind switched directions, so the cave was no longer safe. Um, all the debris mm. was flying into the cave, right? Hmm. So, so how long did it last? Uh, probably about four hours, five hours maybe before uh -huh. it started to calm down. Jeez. So at I'm that just point, wondering, Dave, like you, in the aftermath you, of it, how? Sorry, go ahead, Tiff. Well, how did you end up connecting with other people after that? Well, while well, I was at the beach. Um, there's a there's a waterfall with a stream that goes into the ocean, and I noticed a lady across there. At this point, it was raging so hard, there's nothing I could do to help her, and she was kind of pinned. And it was, it was intense, right, because, like, you're seeing somebody helpless over there, and there's yeah. nothing you can do. And somehow she miraculously got across. You know, as soon as she came across, where she was staying was completely wiped out by the ocean. And so... Mm -hmm. I seen her come across. I went and got her. We came back to the cave at that point, right, and just kind of regrouped. And, well, it's kind of a funny thing because the only thing left standing on the beach was an outhouse, right? <laughs> so 
So basically, we went to the outhouse and rode out most of the storm inside of the outhouse. Well. <laughs> and, uh, you know, uh, interesting thing, too, um, we had some more, like, this was, like, the, the difference with people, right? People are sharing versus people aren't. We had a, another couple come in to get their kayak. They had kayaked in before the hurricane, and uh, this couple came in to get their kayak, right? And we're all just kind of sitting there, you know, sharing everything, just kind of hanging out, you know, um, waiting to get rescued. And they came in, and one of the guys was a cop. And they got really intense. And the situation, like, in those kind of situations, all, all rules go out the door. You're in a survival situation, right? So sure. they were so worried about their kayak and the fact that we might have stolen some stuff but they were at the beach that uh, the cop threatened us with arrest. Right? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> well, we ended up getting arrested in the end, so... <laughs> <laughs> Like when we were finally rescued, we we uh, they flew us in in a military military helicopter into the airport, right? Which was basically destroyed, and everything had been taken over by the military. And as we got off the uh, helicopter, this cop was waiting for us, right? Oh man! So as soon as we get get off, they got the cops to come and arrest us for for looting, believe it or not. Yeah. <laughs> Wow. Jeez. <clears throat> so while you were on the beach, Dave, uh, what did you eat? How did you get food? And water? Well, what we did was, because there had been campers there, um, uh-huh. and like I say, everything was destroyed. If you'd left your stuff there, a lot of it was buried in the sand or in the ocean. So what we did was gathered whatever supplies we could, and we just put them in one spot and said, look, we we gathered all this. Whoever needs anything you know, help yourself. Mm-hmm. Hmm. What would you say was the, uh, along, like along the lines of what we're talking about, which is, you know, um, psychological preparation for this kind of thing. So you said that you were able to stay calm um, and kind of assess the situation. Um, were you the only one or were most people kind of calm? Was anybody really freaking out or did you have to, did you have to help people calm down in that kind of moment? Did you have to yeah, smack anybody? Uh, <laughs> well, the, the cop and his girlfriend. Yeah, actually, it almost turned into a fight. Um, one of the one of my friends who I was with stood up to the cop, and the situation got super tense. Like I thought they were going to kill each other, right wow. over this, and I had to kind of step between them and break it up. And the energy in a in a disaster situation, it's it's very bizarre. It's like a twilight zone. It's the only way yeah. I could really describe. It. So along those lines, like uh, you had mentioned uh, at the beginning of your story that um, you notice how some people are altruistic. Some people are compassionate. Other people get selfish. Um, what, what do you think was the majority, like was the overall sense that you guys were just grateful you know to be there and that you were helping each other how long did it take to turn towards like this is my stuff don't touch my stuff um 
it was kind of based on individuals. In the beginning, you know, even when we were brought out to the main island, right, people were really, you know, had that sense of community. But then mm-hmm. things started to change when they realized that this wasn't just like a day or two or a week, right, that this was going to go on for weeks and months. Then you started to see a change in people, right? Mm-hmm. You get the order mentality and this is mine. And it kind of, you get a, a dividing between people. Mm-hmm. And it, it's, it's a spooky thing, really, you know, like, you know, we kind of see the writing on the wall, these things coming down in the future. You're just going to ha- it's going to be pretty crazy because some people are just going to band together, you know, in gangs and rob people. There's no mm-hmm. question about that, you know. Sure. And, you know, talking earlier about how it's a good to have a sense of community with people, right? Because you can be really prepared and then everything's wiped out and you're left with your own resources. So if you have a good relation with your neighbors, right, you know, it's much easier to work through situations like this. Yeah. Well, and I think it's an interesting note that, you know, um, in those situations, like, Dave wasn't prepared. He was camping. He was on a, a, a you know, a, a retreat kind of island getaway and had none of those canned foods or the bug out bag or anything. And so he had to use his mind quickly to kind of adjust to the situation and, and take with what he had in the moment. Yeah, like we, we basically survived uh, in the valley on, uh, we found luckily some fishermen had chained a cooler to a tree so we survived on beer, chocolate milk, and Fig Newtons. <laughs> <laughs> and I had a nice pink dress to wear, too. Yeah, that's one, that's that's one, one all talks of the keto diet go out the window. <laughs> yeah, at that point, it's yeah. like whatever you... <laughs> and there, this you're talking like this is really a moment where you guys didn't know if you were going to be there for two or three weeks or even a month or longer. Like you weren't sure at yeah. that point. Yeah, the uh, uh, military had landed and they told us, "Hey, you guys are better off here than out there, so just hang tight. You know, we'll check in mm. with you, and when, when it's a good time, we'll bring you out." Mm. Mm. I'm and curious that, about the. Thing. Go oh, ahead. go ahead. I was just gonna say that's another thing in a disaster situation. It's mind blowing how quickly the military will take over everything. The grocery stores, gasoline, you know, they post guards there and they control everything. Sure. Well, in Hawaii, especially, I mean, you guys have a really high concentration of military bases. So I'm sure they were, you know, they were on it as soon as they could be anyway. Yeah, exactly. You know, all transportation, you know, airports, everything under their control. Yeah. I was going to say, I'm curious about the, uh, you had mentioned that a couple flew back in with a helicopter to grab their stuff. What, what was the, uh, like, did, did they offer any help or were they just like land, grab our stuff, we're gone? Exactly. They, 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 wow. they offered no help. They were so concerned with their gear, right? You know, we, we told them, hey, if your stuff's here, go through our, the stuff we've collected, you can take it. And what's yeah. interesting is, the whole airport was destroyed, right? There was probably only a couple of helicopters left that could actually fly, and somehow these ladies got this helicopter to come in there while the whole island's destroyed, right? Like, well, what's up with that? So, um, I guess uh, 
to my question earlier about um, you know community uh, compassion, um, you know being uh, altruistic towards each other, and you notice that some people kind of form cliques, and over time um, people begin to be a little bit more possessive. Um, if let's, I mean, <clears throat> I guess chances are low. I mean, I don't really know, but that most of us are never going to encounter such a drastic situation that you did. Um, but let's say something does happen where you're cut off and uh, whether you're in the wilderness or not, or if you're in a town or any kind of situation, but you don't have direct access to resources. Um, would What would you say is the kind of the most useful thing? You said that you were, you were able to stay psychologically calm. Did you also have um, skills, uh, you know, say kind of rote mechanical skills, like being able to, um, kind of quickly engineer things or anything like that? Like what was the most valuable thing that you found in that moment to have at your possession? Well, first and foremost is your mind, you know, to think clearly, you know, like I guess I've been fortunate where, you know, I've always been kind of do it myself kind of guy. So whether it's, you know, working on the car or farming or, you know, just, you know, those kind of skills, you know, labor skills even are really great. You know, mm-hmm. but like I say, first and foremost is your thinking. And that's really important. I can't emphasize that anymore. Yeah. Right on. Well, thanks so much for sharing that story with us. I mean, I'm sure we could take the whole time just to talk about this. this is really fascinating um, that you went through that and that you were able to uh, to get out of it, um, you know, safely and, and handle that kind of a situation um, that kind of brings me to our, our next topic uh, or next part of what we were going to talk about, which is preparing your mind um, and being able to be mentally prepared for a disaster scenario or an emergency scenario. And um, Doug had an article that he wanted to cover a little bit and uh, also to talk about uh, normalcy bias, which is essentially people thinking that, you know, well, of course things are going to be normal. Nothing could ever not be this way. Um, you know, people get into a, a pattern into a rut of thinking that way and then are not able to pull their mind out of it and think quickly on their feet. Um, so Doug, do you just want to take a few minutes to cover the, uh, the articles that you had there? Yeah, sure. Um, well, the first one was actually um, a little bit more focused on diet. Um, it was an article written by uh, Larry Bowers, one of our um, SOT editors, um, who, and it's called uh, just, Are You Prepping Your Diet? And um, I guess a, a, another way of putting this would just be to call it like ketogenic preparedness. And uh, Larry says in it that like prepping your diet confers significant advantage in, in disaster survival situations. And uh, the ketogenic diet should be a frontline response to general preparedness for the near future. Um, so this is just the idea that, that one of the things you can do to prepare yourself is to uh, get yourself onto the ketogenic diet. Now, we've talked about the ketogenic diet quite a bit. On this show before, we did a two-part uh, um, series a couple of uh, a couple of weeks ago, um, all about going uh, ketogenic. So you can go back and listen to those if you like um, to get a better idea. Um, there's a couple of other resources too, like uh, uh, Nora Gagaudis's book *Primal Body, Primal Mind* or um, Rhea Emmerich's book uh, *Keto Adapted*. Um, those are both uh, good, very good resources for um, for how to get yourself into a ketogenic state, um, a fat burning state, as it were. Um, so, uh, going ketogenic, um, the, the, the best idea is to go ketogenic now. So, I mean, just, just to go over it very quickly, if you're not familiar with it, 
Um, the keto uh, diet is um, uh, uh, kind of getting yourself into a fat burning state. So most people are in a carbohydrate burning state where they're depending mostly on carbohydrates or sugar for fuel, um, which is unfortunately means you're you're going with uh, the kind of the ups and downs of, uh, of blood glucose um, rather than being on a much more stable fuel source like uh, um, fat. Um, so I mean transitioning to the ketogenic diet. Um, it's it's not as simple as suddenly like deciding okay I'm on the ketogenic diet now. There are um, transitions. Um, there's a lot of bumps, a lot of difficulties along the road, um, especially if you're not used to eating a lot of fat um, or or meat. You know, vegetarians uh, will take a bit longer to make this sort of transition. Um, you have to remember that you're kind of taking a, like a major metabolic energy function in your body that extends right to the subcellular uh, level. So it does take some time to kind of switch over to this new fuel source. Um, but there are a lot of uh, advantages to doing that. Um, so, uh, yeah, it, I mean, so the, the best idea would be to kind of transition now before you're actually in an emergency situation. Because if you're going through all those ups and downs of transition, when you're trying to also deal with a, a disaster situation, um, you, you're just going to make things a lot diff more difficult for yourself. Um, and it's important to remember that the longer that you're in ketosis, uh, the more adapted you are, the easier it is to switch back and forth. Um, you know, if you do kind of are in an emergency situation where you can't stay on the diet, um, you're going to have a lot less uh, difficulty going back and forth if you're more used to being in a ketogenic state. Um, one advantage is, uh, is that you re actually require less food. Um, when you're on a ketogenic diet, fasting is very easy. Um, you can often, people only require two meals a day. So um, rather than being in a more sugar-burning mode where you're kind of constantly having to kind of fuel that fire, um, you're having hunger pangs kind of regularly, um, you know, even the uh, a lot of the government bodies out there recommend eating five meals a day. Um, you know, it's 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 a lot cheaper and um, a lot less. Um, well, there's a lot less requirements on you if you are in a ketogenic state. Um, you're not just con you're not constantly thinking about food and where you're going to be getting your next uh, next meal from. Um, another advantage is that fat is very cheap, um, especially if you are getting it from like farmers, uh, from pasture raised animals. Uh, you know, you can get uh, get lard pretty cheap. You can get tallow pretty cheap. Um, and having those things on hand, you know, it, it may not sound very appealing that you just eat a spoonful of lard, but the fact of the matter is in an emergency situation, um, the fact that you can fuel yourself that way for an extended period of time is a real advantage. Um, it also makes, uh, you know, canning and storing of these foods a lot easier. Um, you concentrate on meats and healthy fats. Um, you can can things like ghee, uh, lard, tallow, uh, good quality like coconut oil or palm oil, um, MCT oil, all these things are very easy to store and a lot of them don't actually need any kind of like heat canning or anything like that. You can just kind of uh, keep them in a, in a jar and they'll last for months and months. Um, uh, bone broth is another good thing to be uh, canning. Bone broth is basically like medicine. It has so many good um, nutrients in it. Uh, you can fast for extended periods of time on nothing but bone broth and fat. Um, so, uh, another, uh, another advantage, it kind of gets back to what Dave was saying about before is that prepping your diet also preps your brain. Um, by getting on a ketogenic diet, you have a stabilized mood. Uh, as I said, you're not dependent on these blood sugar swings, which means you're kind of better able to handle stress in particular situations and think your way out of these situations instead of just kind of going into panic mode 
um, because not only are you in a, a stressful situation, but you're low blood sugar. So, um, you know, your adrenals are kicking in to try and get your blood sugar back up, and that's just going to cause stress and probably um, make a situation a lot worse. Um, and you're just not able to kind of see the situation clearly. Um, you know, the more you're able to see, the more knowledge you have, the more knowledge you have access to in the moment, um, the better you're going to be in the long run. Um, also, on when, when you're ketogenic, you have more ability to uh, do kind of exercise and labor if you have to. You can go uh, for a lot, you know, if you have to bug out at some point, uh, you might end up having to walk for extended periods of time. Um, you might have to walk over pretty um, unstable terrain too, especially like what Dave was saying about, you know, how all the trees had blown down and all the trails were, were kind of um, no longer accessible. You know, getting across that kind of terrain can be uh, like really physically demanding. So mm -hmm. being in a, a better state, like a ketogenic state, you're not um, carrying around a lot of excess fat. Um, the ketogenic diet, you naturally build muscle on it, even without working out. So all, these things are, are definitely a big advantage. Um, you also have the ability, as I mentioned before, to, to fast for extended periods of time, to go without food. Um, you know, sugar burners require to be constantly stoking that fire, eating often, whereas fat burners can, uh, only need two meals a day um, and, can, and, and can go for extended periods of time without food, and it's not really a big deal. I mean, intermittent fasting is kind of built into the ketogenic diet anyway, um, a lot of people on the ketogenic diet will fast for about 12 hours um, in every 24-hour uh, period. So um, it's very easy to do when you're in ketosis and you don't even really notice necessarily. You won't be bothered by this constant hunger pangs um, and your body going into emergency mode just because it hasn't eaten in the last three hours. Um, it's also very healing and detoxing, uh, getting yourself into the best state of health. Uh, you're better able to handle whatever's going to come your way. So... Um, not having to worry about kind of chronic conditions um, on top of having like societal collapse or uh, economic uh, um, crashes. You know, you, you just, you don't have to worry about these other things. You know, it's, it's a lot easier to bug out if you're not dealing with something like IBS where you have to be near a toilet all the time or you're not dealing with arthritis, you know, um, and you can't actually move for very long. You know, these chronic conditions are things that are, you know, a lot of people have reported turning around on these things. A lot of people have even uh, mentioned being able to ditch prescription medications, which is another big advantage because um, depending on how long uh, these kinds of uh, societal collapse situations go on, you know, you might not have access to your prescription meds. You know, um, it's not always easy to find those kinds of things. So, you know, it, anything you can do to get off those um, is is a big advantage in these kinds of uh um, situations and also by burning off your fat stores when you're on a ketogenic diet, diet, you actually eliminate a lot of the toxic buildup that's built up over the years and tends to store itself in your fat stores. So because you have okay. more ready access to your fat stores, um, you're going to get rid of a lot of that toxic buildup. But again, this is another reason why you might want to get onto the ketogenic diet um, beforehand. You know, not when you're kind of faced with uh, with these kind of disasters, because going through detox symptoms at the same time you're trying to deal with a disaster, again, um, not exactly the most uh, advantageous uh, situation to be in. Um, other things, you know, ketogenic diet, you get major improvements in energy and, and endurance, um, which, of course, is always an advantage, but particularly in any kind of emergency situation. Um, this involves a lot of uh, genetic changes, 
Um, well, I won't go into that too much. Uh, you can look up stuff on the ketogenic diet and, uh, and genetic changes uh, for more on that. Um, there's a lot less need for supplements on the ketogenic diet, so you'll have a lot less uh, need for stockpiling uh, supplements and stuff. And then just finally, it's like you're more virulent against uh, pathogenic disease. So the ketogenic diet is naturally immune-boosting and makes, makes you less susceptible to uh, disease as outbreaks. Um, another thing which can be, um, you know, uh, uh, there, there can be a, a rise in these kind of disease outbreaks in these kinds of situations because there's a lot less, um, you're a lot less able to deal uh, with things in a sanitary manner. Um, so, yeah, these kinds of things can really um, uh, jump up exponentially. So it, it's kind of a natural uh, immune boost. So overall, uh, if disaster strikes and you find yourself under stressful conditions, you know, which would you rather be, a sugar burner or a fat burner? You know, I think the uh, the um, the answer to that question is pretty obvious. Um, For sure. Just a couple of things about, uh, you know, prepping prepping your mind. Um, one thing, I was just discussing this with my roommate, actually, and he was saying that he thinks cold showers are a great way to kind of prep prep your mind. So I don't, um, we haven't talked very much about uh, cold thermogenesis on, uh, on the radio show here, but uh, getting yourself uh, cold adapted uh, by taking cold showers or cold baths is a really, really good way. Um, I mean, for one thing, it's great for the immune system, boosts immunity, um, causes, again, more of these uh, beneficial genetic changes as well. But it also just uh, builds your willpower. It gets you used to being in, uh, in a, situations that are uncomfortable um, so that you kind of build up your resistance in that way as well. Um, yeah. It's like uh, Jonathan was mentioning before about the normalcy bias. Um, you know, one way that you can prep your mind is to kind of realize that the normalcy bias is a very real thing and you don't necessarily know beforehand whether you're going to be suffering from it. Um, so having a network around is a very um, beneficial, advantageous thing because, you know, you get many heads on in on a discussion and somebody can kind of say, hey, you know, I don't think this is, is this so normal. You know, maybe we should uh, maybe we should kind of be uh, be more proactive about this. Um, there's there's a story um, that I read about a while ago where there was um, a plane crash somewhere and I don't I don't know the details of it, um, but there was a plane crash somewhere um, and the people who were on board, uh, many of the passengers just kind of sat there and waited to kind of be told what to do instead of actually, you know, mobilizing and getting off the plane. And the few people who did kind of have their wits about them were kind of saying, no, 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 we got to move, we got to move, we got to get out of here. Well, those were the people who survived. Um, yeah. Everybody else who was just kind of sitting there and, and wait, you know, because it, it's very difficult, the, the brain, in order to cope with these kind of situations, will kind of default to this position of, oh, you know, everything's normal, everything's under control, don't panic, everything's fine. Um, when really, you know, it would be much more advantageous to just kind of get mobilized and get out of there. Um, yeah, I think the, I think the key from, <clears throat> I was just going to say, I think the key from what you said there is don't panic, you know, and, yeah. and leave out the parts about how everything is going to be fine and everything's normal because it may not be, but right. you know, the main key is to not panic. Well, that's true. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, we've, we've kind of been accustomed to these dire warnings and predictions that don't end up actually amounting to anything. You know, there's uh, there's a swine flu from a while ago, the SARS epidemic, even Ebola, although it's very bad in some places, you know, they, they've been talking about it and it hasn't really, um, you know, reached over here yet, you know. So there's all these kind of uh, dire warnings and, you know, everything on the news has given this sensational twist 
where they pump up even like totally minor events to these over-the-top disasters. So we kind of end up being desensitized. Um, you know, when, when we do, there is all these things possibly coming down the pipe, you know, we're so used to now having these things not um, amount to anything that it's kind of like, you know, you, you end up with that normalcy bias. It's like, yeah, 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 I know, disease epidemic, whatever, no big deal. But um, be, because of this desensitizing, um, it, it kind of conditions us to this, this idea that these things are, are nothing to worry about and that normal life will go on, even if there's like minor hiccups along the way. And I think we really need to kind of get ourselves out of that and really kind of rely on our knowledge, be aware of the environment and kind of get, you know, a more objective view on what's actually going, around, going on around you. And, it, and remember that it's better to be prepared in these situations and have it come to nothing than to not be prepared and have it blow up. So, you know, we've we, we've become very reliant on, you know, governments and corporations and technologies and doctors to kind of meet every single one of our needs. But if we're ever cut off from any of those things, you know, the average person on the street is going to be helpless. You know, they don't, they're so reliant on, on government bodies and corporations, like I said, then that, you know, when, when those kinds of things are cut off, suddenly this person is like, oh, wait, what do I do? my normal way of doing things isn't going to get me out of this situation, so how can I possibly deal with this? Um, these are all things to think about. You know, come up with a plan. What would you do in this kind of situation? Talk about it. Uh, network about it. Um, you know, you need to learn enough and be knowledgeable enough to deal with the best way that one can, um, whatever happens or doesn't happen. Um, you know, it, it's, it's important to kind of stay... Sorry, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to add, I think you're on to something important. I think, uh, you know, it's good to have what-if scenarios. You know, what if mm -hmm. the economy collapsed? What if we had a natural mm -hmm. disaster? You know, have plans in place to help with those sorts of situations. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, you, you know, know like, there's courses out there in, in, in disaster preparedness and stuff. There's all, all kinds of things you can learn, even just getting your, like, first aid certification, um, all these different kinds of things you can do just, I mean, it, it just makes you a more well-rounded human being, if nothing else, but in emergency situations becomes very, very handy. Yes, exactly. You know, like, we, we live on an island, so we're, we're prepared for what if. You know, we, we have bought in, uh, military containers that we can store things mm -hmm. in. We have to, to pack it really quickly. You know, we're, we've planned it all out. We can load it into our truck and we get to a safe place very quickly. You know, I think that's important, yeah. especially if people living in cities, you know, I mean, mm -hmm. that, that's, that's where it's really going to have a, a heavy impact if you're not prepared. Yeah, and I think especially for people in, in cities and stuff is the idea that you have to stay unattached. You know, people are very, generally very resistant to leaving their home, leaving things behind, you know, prioritizing what they need to take with them if they do leave. But if you have to bug out, you really have to bug out. Like you can't just, um, you know, stay put because you have, you know, you're, you're used to the comforts of your home. Um, you know, you have to be able to kind of mentally take stock of what's going on around you and knowing when you need to get out. Um, you know, you have to consider this in advance, you know, decide beforehand what you're taking with you, what you aren't, what kind of the last resort would be if you do have to get out of there. 
Yeah. So that that's pretty, you know, the exercise of actually making a bug out bag. I know that, uh, you know, this gets kind of a, a bad rap because, you know, it gets, gets, you know, kind of filed in with all the crazy preppers and stuff like that. But actually sitting down and making a bag that you could carry, like, you know, that's small enough that you could carry it with you so that you're prioritizing. I mean, it's just a good mental exercise to be thinking about this sort of thing. You know, when, you know, at some point you might have to leave. So by making this bug out bag, you're kind of getting yourself into this, into this mental um, state of what would I actually have to take with me? What, how much can I carry with me? What is a priority? Yeah, well, like that's Dave's, a really good. Oh, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say that, like Dave, what you said about the the what if, you know, it's so important to uh, to have that in mind. I think one of the main things we can do to fight the normalcy bias is to get rid of these ideas of what could and could not happen, because there's so mm-hmm. many times people are in a situation like that where, like, well, that just couldn't happen, or this just can't be happening. Well, you know, mm-hmm. it can, and oftentimes is happening. And um, it's, I think, very important just as a mental exercise to ask yourself, what are your assumptions? You know, <clears throat> can my power go out? Can my water get shut off? You know, can the, the shipping trucks make it to my town? Is my grocery store going to be full of food next week or not? You know, is that possible or is it not? If I think it's not possible, then I have some kind of a, a bias in place that's um, that's blocking my thinking about that. So even just to do these yeah. real basic mental exercises, ask yourself what your assumptions are and kind of delve yeah. into that. Yeah, I think it's, it's, it's important to realize that these, these kinds of things happen every day to all kinds of people and nobody who it happens to is expecting it. So, I mean, at some point, that certainly could be you. Yeah, you know, if you, if you live in a city, you know, like if it was me, I, w- I would have plenty of maps and ways to get around because if there was a natural disaster, especially if it was like a, you know, a statewide thing, the first place that the authorities are going to go to is the city, and they're going to lock down that first and control it, right? So if you really had to get out of there, you know, you want to have alternative routes to try to get by the roadblocks or whatever they have set out, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think an escape route is a really, a really good thing to have. And also, if you have other family members, uh, children or elderly people in your family, to have an emergency plan if communication is shut down. You know, everybody, mm-hmm. it, like here in Hawaii, we have, over the last few years, very frequent tsunami warnings. And um, kind of after Hurricane Aniki, where there was no warning, even though the National Weather Service knew for days ahead of time that this Category 4 or Category 5 hurricane could possibly hit the islands, nobody had any idea. And um, it was actually alternative ham radio operators on the island of Kauai that set up a communication system to get information out to people because, you know, you're wondering, mm-hmm. is this going to be a week? Is it going to be two weeks? And, um, like, for us, you know, having communication with our children about if a scenario happens where the sirens start going off and you're not near home, what to do in that event, you know, how, how you're going to get to a safe space. Here um, in Hawaii, everything is on the shore, so getting to what they call a tsunami evacuation zone, you know, getting to high ground, so being prepared for that and having, you know, a basic outline for everybody in your family is if this situation starts to go down, this is what we need to do. And first and foremost, stay calm, practice your breathing techniques to keep you present, Mm -hmm. and, um, 
not get caught up in the chaos because we've seen mm-hmm. it happen just after uh, the Fukushima disaster in Japan. I mean, you know, we had 24 hours notice about the potential of a tsunami hitting the island, but you watch people just lose it almost instantly. I mean, they're driving to the gas station. They're like driving over the medians. People start driving recklessly. Like all critical thought goes out the window. Yeah. And people, the first thing they do when they, they, they hear a warning is they go straight to the store, all the generators, all the water, everything's off the shelf within an hour or two. I mean, it's mind blowing. Wow. Most so not even the Right. You would say not not even a day, really. You're just looking at a couple hour window there. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, everything will be gone quickly. So you can, you know, if you're not prepared, you you know, you'll be very fortunate to get anything from a store. Mm-hmm. And you know, like gasoline, like as soon as they announce the warnings, I mean, there are lines. That's the first thing people do too is go get gasoline. And then it clogs up everything. So if you're cut off from your home, it could be challenging to get back. Sure. Well, along the lines of, uh, I think, you know, our, the, the general gist of our show being health and wellness, um, uh, Tiffany had some stuff that she wanted to go over here about like the personal, um, first aid kit and what can you do because that's a that's a huge thing to think about in situations like this where you know <clears throat> normally if you say you get a bad cut or something like that you can take care of it very quickly or you can even if it's really bad you can go to the doctor and you can have it stitched up or bandaged up um, sometimes those kind of avenues are not going to be available to people in an emergency situations. so it's very good to have mm-hmm. some very basic medical supplies on hand so Tiffany did you want to go over some of that real quick Sure. And before I get into that, I mean, like you guys are saying, we were talking about before, like if the grid goes down, the power is out, uh, the grocery stores have their shelves totally ransacked within an hour and there's nothing available. You can't have uh, access to your to the hospital or to a pharmacy. What are you going to do? So before any of that stuff even happens, like if you have uh, medical procedures or dental procedures that you've been putting off doing, you need to get those done now. Like if you need dentures, you need your teeth cleaned, if you need eyeglasses, any any stuff like that, you need to do that now. So uh, I was on For YouTube sure. the other day, and uh, there was this interesting interview. Uh, it was called Essential Medical Supplies. Uh, off-grid prescription with Dr. Jay Nielsen, and he's a doctor, and he has a a kind of a, a a camp or mission set up down in Haiti. And so this doctor is into prepping. So um, in this interview, he says that everyone should ask themselves this question: What medications am I on that I can't live without? Um, if you're able to identify medications that cause you great hardship to do without, see if you can work with your doctor ahead of time uh, getting extra prescriptions. Um, you can say you want to make sure that you don't run out in case of emergency or if there's a disaster, if you get snowed in or something along those lines. Just try to work it out with your doctor where you can get at least a few months or up to a year or so of extra supply so you don't run out of your medications. Um, Secondly, you want to ask yourself, do you really want to be in a position where you're relying on medications that you can't get? And that's kind of along the lines of what Doug was talking about earlier. Um, 
if you have a health condition, what are you going to do to get off of those medications? So ketogenic right. diet is is the best thing for that. And because uh, so many medications are useless on the ketogenic diet because you just don't need them. Um, say, for instance, uh, you're a type 2 diabetic and you get on the ketogenic diet and you don't need, like, your uh, glucophage or your metformin or your insulin anymore. That would be a great load off of your back if you could do that. Mm-hmm. So um, on no doubt. more on this interview, um, the doctor, uh, he thought that it's a good idea for people to focus on the big picture, like what are the life-threatening risks that you can run into health-wise in a disaster. And the first one would be infection. So it's a good idea to, like, if you uh, can, again, work with your doctor and say, you know, can you give me some antibiotics just for an emergency in case something happens? Um, Can you give me doxycycline? Um, Doxycycline is cheap. It's effective. Um, Not very many people are allergic to it. Um, Things that uh, naturally you can use that are good against viruses are olive leaf, liquid vitamin D, um, colloidal silver, Artemisia is good for malaria. Say there's flooding and maybe you might live in a swampy area and, you know, there's a risk for malaria. Um, The second thing is wound management. Um, You're going to need some topical antibiotics. Uh, Clindamycin is good. Uh, The doctor said you can just take a tab of clindamycin and drop it into some um, isopropyl alcohol, and that can be a good topical antibiotic. Antibiotic ointments like um, bacitracin, um, salves, calendula, tea tree oil, lavender oils, um, all different size bandages, ace bandages, uh, large safety pins to hold your bandages in place, gauze dressings, both sterile and non-sterile, ABD pads, just anything that you can use to dress a wound as well as some good quality um Metal scissors, not the plastic ones. You don't want your stuff breaking down on you. Um, tape is a good thing to just secure your dressings as well. Um, the third life-threatening thing that he mentioned was infectious diarrhea. Again, say if there's floods or your water gets cut off, uh, sanitation isn't so great. What if there's an outbreak of cholera? So you're going to need um, some Imodium. That's good for diarrhea. Um, and he mentioned something called Vitalite, which is kind of similar to Pedialyte. Uh, Vitalite just has trace minerals in water. You're going to want to replace the fluids that you lose through infectious diarrhea or maybe vomiting. Um, fourth thing he mentioned was pain control. Like, say you have to go out, bug out, and, you know, you're walking, you fall down a cliff or something. Um, so the first 48 hours of pain are the worst. Um, so you're going to have to have things in your first aid kit like ibuprofen, Aleve, or Tylenol. So you went to the doctor at some point and he gave you some pain medications, but you didn't want to take them. Keep that stuff. <laughs> Keep it in your, your medicine chest and you can have it in your stock in case of an emergency. Um, sure. And another thing about medications of all types um, the expiration dates aren't exactly correct. I think part of that is you can make more money if you're a big pharma company and 
people throw their meds out if they expire. But according to this doctor, um, medications, pills, they can maintain 80% potency for about 10 years as long as you store them correctly. And that means keep them out of the heat, keep them out of the humidity, don't expose them to light or um, variables in temperature, uh, keep the temperature constant, and keep them sealed. And most of your drugs will be good for up to 10 years if you store them right. Um, Just to say, that, that applies to, uh, to supplements as well. Um, if right, you have any supplements, right. the expiry date means very little. They're, they're usually mm-hmm. good for at least a year afterwards, if not more. Yep. Um, insulin, which is uh, a topic that causes me some concern because there's type 1 diabetics who they they don't manufacture any insulin whatsoever. But even with insulin, if they're stored correctly, they can last up to two years. So that buys a little time. Um, the fifth thing that the doctor um, brought up was life-threatening allergies. Like say you're you're allergic to bee stings or something like that. It's good to have uh, cortisone. Antihistamines like Benadryl, um, inhalers, nebulizer solutions, if you have electricity to use a nebulizer, and an EpiPen. Make sure you have those kind of things in your first aid kit. Mm-hmm. So <clears throat> some more things that you can put into your first aid kit. Uh, splints, like you fall off, you fell off of that cliff, so you need something to immobilize a broken bone. Um, If you're bugging out and you're walking for a while um, and you forgot your good hiking boots, you're going to need some mole skin to decrease your risk of blisters. Um, If you're tending to somebody's wound, you're going to need some gloves. You might need some sterile gloves. Hand sanitizer if you can't find, you know, um, good clean water and soap. Antiseptic wipes. uh, Betadine swabs. Alcohol pads. Mass, say there's a like infectious respiratory disease going around, uh, regular surgical mask, and maybe the special N95 mask, uh, tweezers, magnifying glass, a pin light. Uh, you can use a tongue depressor to immobilize a broken finger. Um, in case of a bleed, you might need some um, clotting powders, some dressings again, cayenne powder, or cayenne pepper can be uh, used to help minor bleeds. Um, if it's a major bleed, make sure you have a, a quality tourniquet. You're going to need some Q-tips. Um, say you're in a wilderness area, it's always a good idea to have a snake bite kit. Um, and if you're in a wilderness area, you don't want to be dealing with poison ivy or poison oak or sumac, so Phil's naphtha soap is good. Um, have some calamine lotion in your kit. Um, a dental kit, say one of your fillings falls out, you're going to want uh, some zinc oxide powder, and you can add a couple drops of clove oil in there, and uh, you can temporarily fill your, your filling that fell out. Um, you can use baking soda and hydrogen peroxide and some peppermint oil if you want to brush your teeth. Um, clove oil, that's good for dental pain. Um, don't want to forget eye cups and eye wash in case 
you know, get a splinter in your eye or something falls in your eye. Um, for hay fever and allergies, it might be good to stock up on something like Claritin. Uh, again, Benadryl uh, or Sudafed if you congested. I mean, I'm not a big fan of medications, but, you know, sometimes that's all there is. And if it's an emergency situation, it'd be better to have those things than, you know, have to go out and try and find an herb for it. And it's a disaster situation and you want to stay indoors. Um, right. Especially of, along the lines of like, a, or like you had mentioned, aller, severe allergic reactions. You know, like if you're going mm-hmm. into anaphylaxis, then you might really need something like an EpiPen. Um, so some Correct. of those more drastic measures are good to have around. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, there's lots of um, essential oils like eu- eucalyptus oil. You can use that for decongestion. Um, arnica oil. Um, if you mix it with St. John's wort, you can use that as an analgesic. Um, lavender, chamomile, rosemary, eucalyptus, eucalyptus, and marjoram are also good analgesics. Um, in case of uh, sun, sunburns, you want to use some zinc oxide cream or coconut oil. Um, antifungals and antiseptics is... Uh, Treated with tea tree oil or lavender oil. Uh, peppermint oil is good for respiratory and nasal congestion. So there's lots of uh, you know essential oils you can use in, in place of medications that you can't get. Sure. Um, for the for the more hardcore people, people who have like some medical training, say you're a doctor or a nurse or an EMT or something, and you know there's a a viral outbreak. It would be so convenient if you could get your hands on some some IV kits, kind of start an IV on somebody and replace fluids, like if they can't drink or if they're having extreme dehydration due to uh, vomiting and diarrhea. Some of this stuff you can find on Amazon, but the bad thing is uh, for the IV fluids, you have to have a medical license. So that's just an idea out there for people with medical license. If you can get your hands on that, and you can actually practice medicine for your family and your neighbors and friends. Um, Amazon, they also have stapler kits. Like if you have a really bad gash and it needs to be stapled, but make sure you know how to use these things and just don't go around stapling people. <laughs> um, <laughs> emergency dental kits, they're sold on Amazon. They have suture kits and in case you need to, like, sew up a wound. Um, and for absolute worst-case scenario, scenarios, there are field surgical kits. So if you're really super interested in learning how to do, like, wilderness medicine or th- things like that, now is the time to do, you know, learn all you can, you know, practice a little bit on, like, fake arms or oranges or something and try to, you know, get used to the idea of actually, sure. you know, putting your hands on people and helping them when they're in pain. And so, yeah, that's just a short list of things that you can put in, put into your um, your first aid kit. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure this this is a whole entire field of of study by itself that people could get into, like you said, wilderness medicine. And um, mm-hmm. <clears throat> I thought it was really interesting that you brought up uh, people with medical licenses. Um, mm-hmm. That's something that you know I'm sure we have a few who are listening. Uh, and, uh, you know, we just really like to encourage those people that while you 
are in the system and have access to the system and the um, the requisite training uh, to do these things, mm-hmm. you're going to be really valuable in an emergency situation because, you know, where I, I don't have medical training, so I might know that I can put iodine on a cut to prevent infection. I have no idea how to do, how to set up an IV. You know what I mean? So, and that's, mm-hmm. you know, I, I wouldn't even feel safe like trying to do that on somebody. So those people mm-hmm. that, uh, who have that training, um, are, are going to be really important. And I would encourage them to, to be ready as well and be ready to share your knowledge with people and your, your training, um, in those kind of situations. Um, Absolutely. Because what if the doctor or the nurse or the EMT gets hurt? Who's going to take care of them? <laughs> right. And anyway, yeah. when you had brought up infections early on, I was I, I wanted to also mention um, uh, iodine. Like we talked about iodine a little bit. Um, that's I've, I've had so many really beneficial experiences with iodine because, like, I, I hunt and I fish, and uh, I like to keep my knives sharp regularly because uh, I use them in different mm-hmm. scenarios. And I've cut myself quite a bit, you know, by accident. <laughs> Um, and, uh, iodine is instrumental in that. Like as soon as I get any kind of a cut, um, or a skin tear or something like that, I'm putting iodine on it and it, it prevents infection right away. Um, it cleans it out. And especially too, in cases where, um, if you're, you know, this is a little bit more of an extreme scenario, but let's say you live near mm-hmm. where there might be some radiation leakage. Um, if there's, you know, there's plenty of reactors in the States, people might live near those. Iodine is important to keep uh, radiation from being taken up into your thyroid. So you can take mm-hmm. it, you know, um, once a day or once every other day, uh, just a drop in a glass of water to prevent that from being taken up and um, really go a long way to protect you from radiation poisoning. Um, and iodine can also be used to sterilize water. Um, mm-hmm. You would want to do some of your own research on the uh, the proportions uh, that need to be used, but it's, it's a really instrumental uh, compound to have at the ready. DMSO is another good one to have. That's uh, mm-hmm. antiviral. It's great for burns. Say you're experimenting, you know, starting fires out in the wilderness and you burn yourself. It's always good to have DMSO on hand. Um, you can use it for wounds also. Mm-hmm. For sure. So if uh, if anybody wants to learn more about about all of this um, medical preparation, I mean, there's no way we can do it all just in one show. There's loads and loads of YouTube videos out there, um, some great books. Um, I have a few. Um, first one I listed was The Survival Medicine Handbook, A Guide for When Help is Not on the Way. Because what if it is the end of the world as we know it and there's not going to be a military helicopter coming to rescue you in two weeks? Um, so this uh, Survival Medicine Handbook, um, it works on the assumption that there's not going to be a hospital or a doctor available in the aftermath of a, of a catastrophic event. And it gives yep. step-by-step instructions to identify and treat over 100 different medical issues. Um, another book is Wilderness Medicine Beyond First Aid uh, by William Forgery. He's a doctor. And this book also gives information on how to assess and treat and recognize different medical emergencies how to manage physical symptoms and caring for wounds and broken bones. Um, a third one, like say you're out in the wilderness and you know you have your book out bag, but your supplies are getting kind of low. Um, 
this book might come in handy. It's called The Complete Guide to Edible Wild Plants, Mushrooms, Mm -hmm. Fruits, and Nuts, and How to Identify Them and How to Cook Them. Um, Another one is called The Forager's Harvest, A Guide to Identifying, Harvesting, and Preparing Edible Wild Plants. Um, for the more handy, uh, there's the SAS Survival Handbook. I mean, even if you're not handy, it's good to get this book so maybe you can become handy. Um, so it's the SAS Survival Handbook um, for any climate in any situation. And that book teaches you about camp craft and like we were talking about with Dave earlier, how important it is to keep your wits about you. So this book goes into fear management and coping with disaster, as well as basic survival needs, food, and first aid. And also, if you like Dave and you know how to hunt, um, there's a basic butchering of livestock and game. And then finally, um, like we were talking mentioned before, and we're going to do a little recipe on canning, um, the book to get is A Guide to Canning, Freezing, Curing, and Smoking Meat, Fish, and Game. Well, that's it for the books that I have, but there's loads of them out there. Just check out Amazon. Yeah, it's good. Definitely a really, really good idea. I would say almost um, totally essential to have either books on hand or to get online and find reliable resources and print them out. Um, you know, yeah. we're, we're talking about emergency scenarios where clearly one of the first things is going to be that you can't get on the internet. Uh, so not, not everybody's going to be popping out their, their phones, you know, and looking up remedies and things like that. So it's important to have this stuff on hand. Um, mm-hmm. So printing out things uh, I think is also a really good idea. If you can't um, afford the books for whatever reason, and you have a printer handy, just start looking up this information and, and start putting it into a binder. Um, so, and I like that you mentioned the uh, the the wild berries and uh, and herbs uh, handbooks. Mm-hmm. I think that's really instrumental for people. Um, I just wanted to go over a little bit uh, some of these ideas about like things that you can do with without a ton of resources. Um, one of the main things is living off the land, off the environment around you, um, <clears throat> which is definitely not easy, um, but it can be done. And it also um, you need to learn a lot of information about these kind of things so that you don't ingest the wrong things. Um, right. You know, where I live, we have, we have a lot of berries, different types of berries that are available. Um, some of them are very toxic. Some of them are even fatal. Um, so you really need to know, um, you know, what you can and can't ingest. Um, so it's, it's always good to have uh, a handbook um, on hand uh, to be looking out for these things when you are out. <clears throat> if you do go for hikes or, you go out camping or anything like that, you know, don't, don't test the berries by eating all the different ones, but bring your book with you and and look at them and, you know, practice visually identifying things um, so that you know what, uh, what's safe and what's not. Um, And also uh, you had mentioned, you know, um, butchering, basic butchering and um, uh, knowing how to uh, basically if, if you do, have the, uh, the skills to hunt, you know, either boar or uh, deer or anything like that. Um, then you have to know how to, how to break that animal down. Um, you have to know how to use the different parts of it and you have to know how to do it quickly so that the meat doesn't spoil. Um, mm-hmm. you have to know how to get it, uh, into storage, uh, as quickly as possible. 
um, because meat, you know, especially in warm weather can turn very, very quickly. Um, and you also, if you're in a kind of camping situation, you don't want to leave it, uh, laying around because then you can attract predators. Um, so obviously we're not going to go over all of these topics in detail right now. We don't have that much time, but, um, we just really encourage people to look up, uh, those things. Um, if you, you know, some people aren't interested in hunting. Some people are, um, some people have that experience, but if you don't have the experience and you are interested in it, start gathering information, start gathering resources so that you can learn about how to do these kind of things. Um, for me personally, a really important thing too is, uh, fishing. Um, fish are one of the most accessible, uh, sources of, uh, nutrients, protein, fat, um, that you can find, uh, especially if you live in an area with a lot of lakes or streams. Now, some people don't, um, but for those that do, especially, you know, um, in the Midwest or on the East Coast or, uh, you know, anywhere near, a, uh, an area where you have a lot of water, where you have a lot of fish, um, you know, uh, it's, it's kind of funny now because fishing has turned into this thing where it's like you have to have this, the $150 rod, you know, and you have to have all this special kind of bait and these special kind of hooks. Um, but you don't really need all of those things. Um, there's really basic skills that you can learn about how to put together a real simple line and do hand lining. Um, it, it, I would really encourage uh, people to grab a couple packs of fish hooks and just have those available. It is pretty hard to make your own hooks that are going to actually be effective. So it's good to stock up on a few fish hooks just so you have them around, have some line around, um, learn about how to do makeshift um, bobbers, which is just going to make things a lot easier for you. Pretty much anything that floats can be utilized as a bobber. Um, <clears throat> you can also make uh, traps. Um, and I've done this before and it's, it's actually pretty effective, uh, just making a basic fish trap out of a two liter bottle where you, uh, <clears throat> cut off the top of the bottle, um, cut off the, uh, depending on the size of the fish that you're going for, you can cut off just below the cap and then about four to six inches down, you know, where the curve of the bottle becomes straight, cut that off and then invert that and then wire it shut, poke some holes in the bottle so that it will sink. And then drop some bread, um, or even, uh, cheese actually works for this as well, uh, into the bottle and tie a, a rope to it and drop it into wherever you're fishing and leave it there basically for a few hours and then come back and check it occasionally. Um, you can catch a lot of different kind of fish that way. Um, sometimes it's, sometimes it's successful and sometimes it's not. Um, sometimes it's kind of a crapshoot, but it is a, a method that can be utilized, especially for, uh, stream fish like chubs. Um, you know, small trout sometimes will go for this kind of thing. Um, so it's just another tool basically to have in your toolbox. Um, along those lines too, we were talking about identifying things, uh, get a book, uh, that helps you identify fish, different types of fish in your area. Um, which mm -hmm. ones, uh, are, you know, like where they live, do they live in streams? Do they live in lakes. Um, are they bottom feeders? Are they not? Um, for instance, where I am, like we have a lot of Northern pike that are available. Uh, we have a lot of trout in the streams. Um, I mentioned chubs. We have those too. And a lot of people don't think of chubs as being like a real edible fish, but they actually are. And they can be caught in great quantities. Um, so they, they're kind of like large minnows, I guess, if anybody is not familiar with what those are. Um, but it's good to be able to identify these different types of things and understand what's more practical to go for and what's not. Like, for instance, I think any anglers who are listening to this would agree that, you know, rock bass are not that palatable. Um, 
you have to work really hard to get any meat off of them at all. So in some of these situations too, if you're in a real emergency, um, it's, it's not even that necessary to get a lot of meat off of the fish. You can actually also uh, clean them with a salt brine and then boil them and make a broth out of the, out of the mm-hmm. fish, um, you know, and make fish stew that way that you're getting a lot of the nutrients from the bones and from the fats that are in the fish itself. Um, so these are all skills to kind of keep in mind and, uh, think about, you know, for emergency situations, understanding how to do these kind of things. You don't have to be, um, <laughs> Davy Crockett necessarily to, you know, to understand how, just how to do basic hunting. Um, and you don't really even need, um, the, uh, the firearms for this. Now, of course, firearms have made hunting a lot easier over the years. Um, but, you know, there's a reason that the Native Americans and other indigenous cultures have used um, bows, um, you know, going back thousands of years uh, because they're highly effective and you can become very skilled in using a bow. Um, so that's another skill that I would recommend people practice with and look into if they're curious about that. Um, bows can even be made uh, by hand from a various number of resources, though you have to have a lot more skill to be able to, do, to actually do that. Um, at the very least, I would recommend it if you can afford it get a uh, either a, a compound bow or, or a recurve bow and just start practicing with it and getting your target practice down. Um, that way you're not relying on ammunition. You know, you can actually make your own arrows. Um, you become much more adaptable to different types of scenarios. And you can take down large game um, with a bow and arrow. So it's it's not something that's really limited to, uh, to small game. So... Um, Let's, uh, no, we're, we've, we've gone a little bit <clears throat> over our, our normal time here and we're, we're running a little bit short. So let's go to Zoya's segment and she was going to talk a little bit about preparation with, uh, with pets. So we're going to go to Zoya's regular pet health segment here and we will be back afterwards to talk for a short time about, uh, canning. <laughs> Hello and welcome to the Natural Pet Health segment of the Health and Wellness Show. Today we are going to talk about prepping for pets. Why it's important to spend extra time thinking about what we are going to do with the furry members of the family in case of an economic collapse or natural disaster. Consider the impact of a disaster such as Hurricane Katrina. Records show that more than uh, 250,000 pets, including cats, dogs and fish, were left stranded by the storm and the subsequent flooding by owners who thought they would have returned in a few days but were unable to do so. But each situation is different and there are all kinds of emergency cases. In some cases you may have to leave your pet in a safe location and come back later and in others to take them with you. But we are going to concentrate on cases where your pet goes whenever you go. The upside of having animals with you is that pets can be useful in survival situations. They can warn you that uh, storms are coming, they can defend your home, and they can perform a multitude of services to help you survive. For example, dogs, cows, horses, and other livestock can tell you when storms are approaching. They get nervous and may begin to gather in herds facing the same location. Depending on the type of an animal you have, you uh, may get a few hours' notice to prepare. So there are two main things that you need to remember 
that pets will require food and that they may get sick. Therefore, storing uh, back pet food and common medications is a necessary part of your prepping. I talked a bit uh, about things you may need in an emergency kit in one of the previous shows, so you can look it up and listen to it. But essentially, it is similar to a human emergency kit. There are also various herbs and uh, remedies that may be useful for both pets and humans, and this was also covered in the previous show. In any case, in the article version of the show, I'll include several important and useful links. As for food, one big advantage of being a pet on a raw food diet that there is no need to worry about uh, carrying extra weight in the form of a dry food. If you are on a paleo or ketogenic diet yourself, your pet, either a cat or a dog, will be able to eat whatever you eat. And if they will require anything additional, they can get it themselves by hunting or gathering. You probably noticed that when a kitty or a dog feel a bit sick, they go outside and eat grass or look for some other appropriate plants. Luckily for us, unless we are talking about toy dog breeds like Pomeranian, Shih Tzu or Chihuahua, many dogs or cats have much better instinct than us when it comes to survival. But don't feel it discouraged, because even small breeds like Yorkshire Terrier can be trained. In fact, since they are terriers, Yorkshire Terriers in the past were used for rat hunting. It all come down, it comes down to, to the time the owner is ready to spend on the animal in order to make them emergency ready. Okay, so make sure you have a water bowl and a food bowl in your pet kit. A sturdy leash and collar for your pet. Make sure that your pet is prominently tagged and the tag contains details such as your name, your phone number or any other detail that will help others to find you and return the pet to you. Kitties should always uh, have a small crate. They get frightened and can, uh, and it can take off if you let them out. Some kind of litter box would be helpful and you can use just plain dirt for litter if necessary. So if it's a cat, make sure for them to have a leash just in case and a comfortable but not heavy carrier. And just a note about leashes and collars. Make your leashes and collars from paracord that can be dis, uh, disassembled and used as a, in an emergency. Also remember uh, that should a speedy evacuation be under order, the last thing you want to do is waste time trying to round up your four-legged friend. Make sure your pet is crate trained, or at least crate friendly, so the animal will respond immediately when called during a disaster. Many animal behavior experts advise pet owners to develop a trigger to get uh, the animal to go to the crate, be it a word, noise, or whistle. Then follow up uh, by rewarding the pet with a treat every time the specific sound is presented. Investing time in this type of training up front could prove beneficial should you need to retrieve your pet quickly so it can be relocated to a safer area. Also consider keeping a spare crate in your car or at friend's house. In some instances, you might not have more than a split second to grab your pet with your own two hands and go. If your pet takes medication on a regular basis, keep tabs on where you store it so you can grab any prescriptions at the moment's notice if necessary. 
factor in standard monthly needs such as heartworm and flea medication along with any special meds your furry friend may require such as steroids. Natural vets, vets don't recommend overuse of steroids for pets, but sometimes in case of a real emergency they can be real lifesavers. Try to keep a two or three week supply of medication on hand at all times, as you never know how long it might be before you can replenish. Store it in a waterproof container to avoid contaminating or ruining your supply. In addition to medical records kept on file with your vet, make, make an extra copy to store uh, in your purse, car or office, and consider giving a family member or friend the list as well. Don't forget to take enough water for your pet. A dog will need about one cup of water for every two and a half kilos of body weight. They will need a little more uh, in hot water, weather. Dogs can or do drink some really, uh, you know, questionable water and don't seem to mind, but some can be more particular. Some dogs uh, are also more sensitive to either cold or hot weather. Therefore, it is also important to learn about your dog's or cat's breed sensitivities and predispositions and prepare for them. Now let's talk uh, a bit about training pets for emergencies. There are several reasons why you should provide your pet with training in case of emergency. Dogs or even birds can provide protection. Horses can be used for work or as a means of transportation. Uh, and even pigs can be trained. But the key word is training. Just as your animals can help you if properly trained, a barking dog can be your downfall. Here are some basic training categories that you should provide when, when uh, prepping for pets. First category is obedience. Your dogs should be trained to come, to be quiet and to sit or stay. In case you're hiding, a barking dog can be a dead giveaway if you're there. Your horse uh, should be taught to stand still, to be saddled and mounted, and to take a beat without a fight. You can lose valuable time chasing it in circles trying to mount. Second category is desensitization. We all remember what happened, uh, what happens to a lot of animals during um, a 4th of July parade in US, for example. So, many things may will be strange to animals. The sounds of guns, the smell of smoke, all of these can frighten animals. Get them used to all of this before the emergency situation so that they will remain obedient, useful and safe. Third category is service. Train your animals to be of use. Dogs can pull people or small carts, carry backpacks and act as protectors. Horses can be ridden or used as plow animals and can pull the sick or wounded. Pigs can be trained to defend the, ho uh, the house or even carry items. Birds can even be trained to protect you or to act as an alarm. Train your pets to serve a purpose, if at all possible. Otherwise, they will just be extra mouths to feed. So it's imperative that you train your animals so that you don't put it, uh, put it in danger and can actually help you in a survival situation. Research what your pets can do. Uh, then either learn how to train them or work with a professional trainer. Okay, so this is it for this segment, and I hope that it was uh, useful for you, and have a nice day, and uh, goodbye.
<laughs> Love that outro. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thanks a lot, Zoya. That was great. Um, really helpful information there <clears throat> and something that people might not be thinking about normally, um, how to handle their pets or even, you know, how to train their pets to be helpful to them in an emergency situation. Um, so definitely some information to be considered and, and looked up further. Um, so in, in our last, uh, few minutes here, now we, we don't really have the, uh, the time to give you a full education on how to can things uh in just a few minutes um so i'm really going to be encouraging everybody to do their own research and look these things up but i do think that it's something that's very important to learn um especially considering uh, considering that uh power is a, a modern convenience um it is something that uh is somewhat tenuous um the grid is not actually that stable <laughs> despite what we may mm. think or have a normalcy bias about um so, you know, refrigeration is not always going to be there, and it's important to learn how to uh, preserve a bunch of different types of food um, through canning. Now, <clears throat> uh, if you type, you know, canning or pressure canning into Google, you're going to get millions of results. And so there's tons and tons of information out there, tons of books um, that you can order and have at the ready um, so you can practice on your own. Um, but we just wanted to kind of go over some of the basics here. So you can do um, canning with a pressure cooker or you can do like a, a water bath in a large pot. So I'm just going to cover um, the pressure canning, the basic procedures here, um, which is basically just to have uh, your mason jars um, at the ready. Make sure you get good quality mason jars that can withstand the heat. Um, make sure that you have uh, clean lids and, and rings. Um, and it's also very handy, though not necessarily required, to have a funnel. Um, so you can funnel the contents of, of whatever you're canning into the jar um, and just have a real easy cleanup. Um, but basically, you want to prepare your uh, pressure cooker by putting a few quarts of water in the bottom. You don't want to fill it up very much. Uh, you just want enough to create the steam uh, in there. And you're going to um, heat up your jars a little bit beforehand. Uh, you can place them upside down into the hot water after you bring, don't necessarily bring it to boiling right away. Um, but with the lid off, just heat up your water on the stove, um, put the jars in there so you can get the jars hot. Um, and then using a, uh, I'm sure most people have seen, but if you haven't look up a, a, a jar handler, um, it's basically kind of like, um, like a set of tongs, uh, that allows you to grab the, the edges of the jar without using your hands. Those are very handy. Um, so get some of those, um, and so you want to, you want to heat up the jars and then uh, take them out of the, the water, um, put the contents uh, into the jar, and then make sure that you wipe the, the lid of the jar um, or the, the lip as well as the lid. Make sure that everything is very clean so that you get a good seal. Um, and then put the, uh, the cap uh, as well as the, uh, the, um, the screw top. You have these two components to a mason jar lid uh, onto the jar. Um, leave a, like maybe one or two inches of head space at the top of the jar um, and uh, put your jars into the, the water bath with a, uh, a grate or some kind of a riser at the bottom so that they're not sitting directly on the bottom of the, uh, the canner. Um, <clears throat> and also make sure that they're spaced out like about an inch uh, in between each jar so that you have room for the steam to move around inside there. Um, and then the basic premises, and again, again, you can look this up uh, to find a more detailed 
uh, process. Um, there's uh, a lot of information on the forum, on the SOT forum about this. Um, there's also a good site as simplycanning.com. Um, there's tons of information there about very specific procedures. Uh, they have charts available for your altitude and how much pressure and how much time you need to use to, to make sure that uh, you're safely canning and you're not creating an environment for botulism or other bacteria to uh, fester within the jar. Um, but basically then you would, you, you put your jars into this uh, shallow bath in the pressure cooker, uh, put the lid on, bring the water up to boiling and allow the steam to vent from the pressure cooker for about 10 minutes. Um, this pushes all the air out from the canner. And then after the 10 minutes, then you uh, close the vent or else put your weighted gauge onto the, uh, the top um, to allow the pressure to build. And once you can tell uh, that the pressure has reached the correct level, um, then according to the recipe of whatever you're canning, you need to then let it sit and monitor that pressure for a certain period of time. Usually it's an hour, hour, 15 minutes, hour and a half, sometimes even a little bit longer. Um, but it's very important in this specific way of canning to maintain the correct pressure for that amount of time. Um, also like to really encourage people to use caution when they're doing this. Accidents can happen. Um, if you cool the jars too quickly after they're done, um, you can, they, they can break. You can cut yourself. Uh, also, if you're not careful when you're opening the pressure cooker, you need to let it vent before you open it. Um, you can burn yourself with the steam. Um, you know, you could get hit with the steam and then knock the pot over and burn yourself with the boiling water. Um, so there's a lot of caution that needs to be uh, taken in this process. But um, <clears throat> mainly is to allow the process to take the time that it needs. Uh, so make sure that you know how much time uh, you need to leave the, the jars in the canner so that you're, you're actually bringing it to a safe temperature uh, for the right amount of time. And then also let them cool for a long time. Uh, and when I've done this, I basically just, uh, once the pot has cooled down and you can open the lid, uh, take the jars out with the jar handler and set them on a towel or a wooden cutting board on the counter and just leave them overnight. And it's, uh, it's also very important to not mess with the lids until after they've fully cooled because the lid is your gauge for whether or not it's actually sealed. The mason jar lids will, um, become, uh, concave. You know, they'll, they'll get sucked down by the vacuum pressure inside the jar. And as they're cooling, you'll hear them make this little click, uh, in the background, you know, when the, when the lid is inverted. And that's your sign, uh, that it has actually sealed. Um, but basically the most important point here is just to let it take the time that it needs. So take them out, don't mess with them, let them sit on the counter overnight. When you come back to them in the morning, then you have your, your canned goods, whether it's, um, vegetables or meat. Um, and you can, can meet, uh, safely. There's a lot of resources online where you can look up these specific methods. Um, you can do everything from sausage patties to, uh, you know, cubed, uh, meat. Um, basically you, you don't want to be shoving like a whole steak into a jar. Um, but you could take your steaks and cut them up into cubes, you know, and then pack them in there. Um, I've even seen different recipes that are, that are actually where, you have a t fully prepared meal in the jar itself where you can can ribs, you know, with a sauce, um, put some spices in there, get it flavored. So that way when you open the jar, it's basically ready to eat. Um, so that's, that's my general overview of canning. Like I said, we don't really have the time to go into a full in-depth analysis of this, but do you guys have anything to add from your own personal experience with canning? 
Well, what I usually do is just uh, I let it. Um, you know, I, I'll I'll sit there and I'll 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 can it, and then um, I just turn off the stove. And I'm usually doing this in the evening, and I just leave it overnight, like in the canner. I don't I don't take the jars out beforehand. Just let the sure. the kind of the pressure come down, the temperature come down, and then in the morning, I mean, the jars are still hot, and I'll use those tongs to kind of take it out and uh, and uh, and just put it on the counter to kind of cool down, make sure the seals the seals good. Yeah. I also recommend labeling and dating. So if you're doing yes. multiple cans of, um, you know, different different types of meat, like Jonathan was saying, you know, you just have a little, after obviously the jars cooled down, you stick a label on it and a date. So if, you know, um, Jonathan, maybe you know more about how the shelf life, about how many years a can of meat can last, but that way, you know, if you're, if you started canning years ago and you want to use the older stuff first and try it out, then, then you, you kind of have a, an idea of, of the date of your, of your canned goods and then what they are as well. Exactly. Yeah. I, I don't know the exact times, but I know that canned meat even can be good for up to a couple of years. Yeah. Um, but definitely also very important to check the cans or the jars before you're going to eat anything. You know, if your lar- if your, your uh, lid has popped out and is not showing that it's sealed anymore, don't have it. You know, better safe than sorry. Just you know, chalk it up to a learning yeah. experience and toss it out because okay. the um, the bacteria uh, that can form in there can be very dangerous and botulism is, is nothing to mess around with. Yeah, and on that point, you should always reheat the food afterwards if it's at all mm-hmm. possible. Don't just eat it cold out of the jar. You want to bring it back up to boiling temperature or something like that just to make sure that if anything did grow in it, you're you're taking an extra precaution there to kind of uh, kill that off before you eat it. Right. And I would say uh, don't be too obsessed with canning, like, strictly organic grass-fed meats. If you're in an emergency in the world as we know it situation, it's not going to matter much if your meat is grass-fed or not, as long as you have something to eat. Yeah. Very true. Yeah. And on that note, I mean, a lot of people, depending on what kind of grocery stores you have around, will run uh, sales on meat that's, you know, mm-hmm. in its last week or last two weeks um, towards the sell-by date. Uh, so that can be something. And uh, I have a couple friends that do this as well. We'll keep an eye out for sales at the store. You know, and you can go get a chuck roast for like half off and then cube that up yeah. and, and can it. Um, same mm-hmm. thing with pork ribs and, and all sorts of things. So, yeah, I did that with a bunch of uh, chicken thighs from Costco at one point. Cool. On sale. So I got them sitting in my shower right now. There you go. Yeah. So I think our, our, our general point basically is that, um, <clears throat> well, I guess to recap, uh, Based on, on Dave's story at the beginning of the show, which, again, we'd like to really say thanks to Dave for being on and talking about that. It's awesome to have somebody with direct experience from a disaster-type situation, but um, is to keep your mind clear um, and to have the tools, the mental tools at the ready to learn how to stay calm, um, to think clearly, um, to be, if you need to be the one, you know, <clears throat> you don't need to have a hero complex and be like the coolest person around. But if you do need to be the one in a group who's calm, then you have those tools at the ready and you can say, okay, let's calm down. Let's think about this strategically. What do we need to do? Um, uh, second important, I think, definitely is having skills. So taking the time to do research, print out materials or buy books so that you can learn and practice the skills that you need. 
um, and to have a network uh, available. So, um, you know, one small example is meet your neighbors. If you don't know your neighbors, then, you know, tomorrow or even tonight, just go knock on the door and say, hey, you know, we're neighbors and I wanted to say hi because we should know each other. Um, you know, it's it's good to know the people that are around you, um, know who you can work with and who you might not be able to work with. And um, mm -hmm. and if you do have if you do have farms around, uh, establish connections with those farmers um, so that they know who you are. Um, so that if you do have to approach them in the future and ask for, you know, to buy uh, food or even to trade for something, then you already have a connection established. So human connection in this kind of a scenario is very important. Um, and then having your um, medical supplies at the ready, having a good first aid kit so that you don't run into a problem with infection or any of these things that can really turn out to be fatal um, in an in a emergency situation. Um, even simple things like an infected cut uh, can kill you, you know, if you're if you're not able to deal with it properly. So it's important to have those methods available. And then um, preserving food. I mean, we all need to eat. And you know, if this does, if this kind of thing does happen, the grocery stores are not going to be there. Uh, your con your convenience stores are not going to be there. Um, you're basically going to have what you've set aside, and then what you're able to find. Um, so it's very important to. Uh, stock up, I would say at least uh, a week's worth of food, uh, if you, unless you can even go more than that. Now, granted, some people have many months or even a year's worth of food. And there are uh, sites online where you, if you have the money, you can buy like a pallet, you know, of food that will last you and your family for a year. Um, so there's a bunch of different options there available. But uh, I know a lot of people um, in our culture now, um, you know, with jobs not being the greatest, the economy is not the greatest. Um, Many of us don't have thousands of dollars laying around or even a few hundred dollars. And so um, we really need to know how to be prepared for these kind of situations with the limited resources that we do have available. So if you go grocery shopping, grab one extra thing, you know, grab one extra roast, um, grab some uh, an extra box of baking soda or, you know, take the 40 or 50 dollars uh, that you have to order a bag of uh, good salt online and set the salt aside. Um, basically just be looking into these things and do little steps um, towards being prepared for an emergency situation that so you don't find yourself um, totally in the lurch. So I, I, honestly, I wish we had longer. Um, this is a really broad mm -hmm. topic and maybe we can go, we can go into it more in a different show um, mm -hmm. and talk, you know, more in depth about some of these methods. Um, but uh, for now, that's our, that's our show for today. So I'd like to thank everybody for tuning in and um, really appreciate our, our chatters as well. Um, and please uh, be sure to tune back in next week. Uh, we'll be here again uh, next Monday at 2 p.m. Eastern. So thanks for listening, everybody. Bye, everyone. Bye. 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 Bye.